Please stand for the reading of God's holy word coming to us from the book of Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Following the reading of God's holy word, we will sing the Gloria Patri, which is printed in your bulletin. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Hear the word of the Lord. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of, and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the word of the Lord. This is one of the most important passages on the supremacy of Christ. And Paul wants you to be free from accusation. He wants you to experience the new life offered to you in Christ. But he wants you to have knowledge of something very important first. It reminds me of a time when I the one and only time that I got to witness open-heart surgery. I was in a hospital in Houston, and I saw a couple of surgeons giving open-heart surgery. From I watched from a balcony. There were two surgeons. They were surrounded by a number of nurses, and they had hundreds of tiny instruments and forceps and metallic instruments that they were using. And I remember being astounded by the knowledge of these two surgeons. If if there was one move that was a mistake, it, it was a life and death uh, thing for the patient. The patient was lifeless. I, they looked lifeless. They were unconscious. Obviously, they were still living. But uh, they were not free at that moment. They were very much dependent upon the knowledge of the surgeon. And, of course, if you know anything about surgeons, they go through all kinds of medical training, years and years of of schooling and then years and years of, of residency and maybe even subspecialty. 
And the life and death of the patient is dependent upon their knowledge. Well, Paul, in this book, is communicating new life. He's communicating something that brings hope and vitality to you. But he doesn't start with a how-to. In fact, the entire book is laid out in such where he spends a few chapters on doctrine, on what you are to know. And then he moves to putting on the new self and experiencing the new life in Christ. We have here a small kind of microcosm of that. He doesn't begin with a how-to. Uh, he gets to new life in the second paragraph, but in the first paragraph, it's all about the supremacy of, of Christ. It's almost a philosophical treatise on the supremacy of Christ. Supremacy is not a, a word we use very often. One dictionary definition would be a state of superiority, thinking something is superior. I think my definition for this, for this text would be maybe a guide to life or a guide to understanding what's real. The Greeks sought knowledge as a guide to life. They were fascinated by philosophy. They spent a lot of, they spent hundreds of years talking and thinking about knowledge and what was real. The Jews sought tradition or religious rituals as a guide to life. Let me give you some background. The ancient city of Colossae was about 80 miles from Ephesus. It's in the western part of modern-day Turkey. Paul had actually not preached in Colossae. There were a couple of people from Colossae who had been converted, Epaphras and Philemon. But in Colossians 2.8, I won't have you turn there, but Paul warns of hollow and deceptive philosophy that depends on human tradition and the basic principles of the world. So clearly there was something going on, a heretical teaching in Colossae that Paul was concerned about that was leading people astray. F.F. Bruce, a biblical commentator, a scholar, said the Colossian heresy evidently encouraged the claim that the fullness of God could be appreciated only by mystical experiences for which ascetic preparation was necessary. So perhaps or probably people were teaching that God, if there was a God, a one, one true God, which was not universally acknowledged, but that the ultimate reality had to be approached through angels or through mystical experiences some, in some form or fashion. Kent Hughes, another scholar, said that there were those who thought Jesus was a ghost-like phantom, that matter was evil and that there were some with superior knowledge. So when Paul, in verse 19 of your passage, when Paul says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Christ. It was very radical for its day. Uh, that the one true God would take on flesh was radical. To Jews, it was, in fact, blasphemous. 
to Greeks, it was irrational or didn't make sense to them. But Paul is saying that Christ created everything and that he explains reality, he explains everything that we see. I won't go into too much detail, but again, the Greeks had a long history of trying to understand reality. Thales said all is water. Heraclitus said all is fire. Plato said that the earth was a shadowy place, but the forms in our heads were real. And Paul says, no, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. So for Paul, when he's, by the way, he's not teaching anything that John and his gospel would later confirm. In the beginning was the Logos. The Logos was with God. The Logos was God. Paul is, is teaching that to look at Christ, the Lord Jesus, is to stare into the author and maker of all things. It's to stare into reality. It's to stare into some measure to God. Come in the flesh. And if you want to have any hope of a steadfast life, uh, of a life of freedom, a life of being established in your purpose and being firm in the hope of the gospel, you have to understand who, who Christ is. When we gather together as a church during Christmas time, we don't say, hark, sing, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn philosopher. Glory to the newborn wise teacher, special person. Or in Philippians, we don't say that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is a very good guy. I, to say that, and we laugh, rightly so, is to demean who he actually is. He is Lord. He is a king. And we are all in some, men, some measure meant to feel the sting of that in, in every area of our life. Every culture thinks they have the guide to life. Of course, Americans often believe that treasure is the guide to life. But Christ, uh, Paul says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The mystery that was hidden for ages has now been revealed. Every culture seeks a guide to life and a guide to reality. So let me just give you two uh, that I think are present today because I think that they keep many people from experiencing the freedom that's offered to them in Christ. Some people think science is supreme and they think that it will solve all of our major problems that aging can be stopped or artificial intelligence or robotics will give us some new breakthrough that will bring the world peace. Some people sadly think, have a, a darker view that the world, uh, really a supremacy of power, power is supreme. And that if we just get power into the hands of the right people, they'll bring hope and change and purpose and freedom. Uh, they often, without going into too much detail, view the world as 
people who are oppressed and people who are oppressing. Those are the only two kinds of people in the world. Christians say, look, all of this is an empty and hollow philosophy. What is really wrong with the world and wrong with us is in verse 21. Apart from Christ, Paul says, you were alienated from God. And you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Everybody can see that there's evil behavior in the world. The question is, why is it here? And to Paul, the answer is that we have been alienated from God. We've been cut off because of our sin. We need to be reconciled to God. That's fundamentally what is wrong with, with the entire world. The creation itself, he says in Romans 8, is, is in bondage and needs to be set free. Sin is not simply wicked deeds. In fact, it's an enslaving power, a power that people are in bondage to. As he says here, you were enemies in your minds. You were enemies. So all of us, apart from Christ, deep down are held captive by guilt, by fear, by shame, by the fear of death, rightly so because we've been alienated from God. That's the fundamental problem. That's the fundamental problem. And if we want any real hope or freedom, it has to be found in Christ. I remember a a friend of mine in college went to a very secular college. This person found out that um, I was a Christian. They asked me if I would... At the time, I was a single, single man. If I would marry someone who was a, not a Christian, and I, I said it, it was my hope that I would marry someone who was a Christian. That was my conviction. And they, the response was a typical response, I think, of our day. How could you... Religion is so restrictive. That's so restrictive. That's so limiting. It's constraining and inhibits your freedom. They didn't say this, but uh, many people think that that religion is something, a form of oppression, at least in the West. Maybe not as many people here in East Texas, although some people might think that. John Calvin, in this passage, says that in Christ, God shows us his righteousness, goodness, wisdom, power, in short, his entire self. We must therefore beware of seeking him elsewhere. For everything that would set itself off as a representation of God apart from Christ will be an idol. So what this passage, I believe, is teaching is that everyone serves something as supreme. Christ is truly supreme. Christ is the one who made everything. But our hearts are perverted and twisted. And so we look to idols. In fact, the Old Testament is a long story of idolatry. We all look, it's not a question of is there something supreme or are we worshiping? Everybody worships. Everybody thinks something is supreme. It's just the question of what do we think is supreme. And this Lord is the only Lord who will actually lead you to real freedom. He's the only Lord who will not oppress you. He's the only Lord who will actually lead you to real peace of conscience. 
And consider the, the context of this letter. Paul is writing from prison. He says at the end of the letter, remember my chains. But in our passage, he doesn't say anything about his chains. Uh, at the very end, in verse 24, we didn't read it, maybe I should have, he says, I rejoice in what, what, what was suffered. I rejoice in what was suffered. He's rejoicing in his suffering and in his prison, in his imprisonment. I find it instructive that there's no self-pity or self, um, there's no hatred of his enemies. Paul is in prison and he doesn't say, beware of the Roman oppressors who are out there leading people to, um, into chains and bondage. Instead, he's saying, look, I'm free. He's rejoicing. John Bunyan spent 12 years in, in prison, and that's where he wrote Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. That's where he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. And he says, I preach deliverance to others. I tell them there is freedom while I hear my own chains clang. I think it was Bunyan's conviction, and uh, I think it's Paul's conviction, that who or what you serve will determine the outcome of your life, whether you are free. Who or what is your Lord? That's why Charles Wesley could say, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And if you look in verse 23, uh, Paul says, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Paul has become a servant. And that word servant is the word diakonos. It's the word we, we use for deacon. It was used of the Lord Jesus himself, by the Lord Jesus himself, in Mark 10, 45, when Jesus said, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to diakonos, to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We have a hard time, I think, understanding lordship or supremacy because we live uh, without any real king or queen. But in, in feudal times, a lord had a servant, had many servants, many people who were there to wait on them. And this is the only lord, though, that that says, not that you must serve me, although he asks that, but he says, first and foremost, I have come to serve you. The God of the universe who deserves all praise, deserves all service, deserves all honor, that God came down and took on flesh in order to sacrifice for you. He purchased your freedom, that you would be, as he says in verse 22, that you would be holy in his sight, without blemish, and free. Free from accusation. He purchased your freedom at the price of his own blood. He is the only Lord who, who does not say, you will sacrifice for me. He says, I will sacrifice for you. Uh, he is the only Lord who actually will forgive you 
if you fail to honor him, if you fail to serve him as he properly is due. He is the only Lord who will do that. And he has made peace through his blood shed on the cross. It's a throne of grace. And praise the Lord, it's a throne of grace. And that means that none of us, if we confess our sin, are excluded from it. None of us are excluded. He is the only Lord who will not exclude anybody as long as they confess their sin and their need to be saved. Many of you may know the name Lowell Ivy. Lowell Ivy, um, now, before I tell you his story, let me just speak very carefully. Lowell Ivy was a white supremacist. um, And before I speak on him, I just want to say, because this is a very sensitive topic, I am not calling anyone here a white supremacist, and I am not saying that the church suffers or struggles with white supremacy. But this is a passage on supremacy, and uh, that word is used, and so I I want to tell you his story. Lowell Ivy, you can find it on Ligonier. This is a public Uh, public testimony. He was a white supremacist, grew up as a white supremacist. And he was put in prison, and there he heard the gospel. He was converted in the gospel, after hearing the gospel. And he uh, confessed his sins, and I think many, I I think, I could be wrong, that some of the ministers in this area were partly uh, the ones to minister to him. But now he, he was released and he became a minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And the irony of his story is that he had to go to prison to be free. He had to go to prison to be free. And that means that sometimes the Lord will lead you to all kinds of dark and dreary and sad places in order that you might be humbled and find grace at the throne of the Lord Jesus, that you would renounce supremacy in any area of life. For him in particular was, a, a, as he has said, racial supremacy, but it could be supremacy in any area of life. Uh, but real confession and repentance does not lead, to think, lead one to think that you are supreme. It leads you to think that you are actually <laughs> just as bad as anyone else who comes to the throne of grace. And that it it leads you to humility, that you need to find grace. It doesn't lead you to exclude, but rather through humility to show one another grace. I think that Paul himself, at one time in his life, was a religious supremacist, considered the, the um, text from Philippians, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now, you can call that whatever you want, if you want to call that supremacy or not. But clearly, at one point in his life, Paul thought that his religion was so superior that he would put other people to death because of it. And then Paul had a radical experience of God's grace. 
He had a radical experience of God's grace, and that led him not to claim himself as supreme, but rather led him to be a diakonos, a slave of Christ. It led him to be a servant of Christ. It led to self-renunciation. That's what it led Christ to do. I mean, led Paul to do. And so if, if Christ had to become a diakonos to free you from your sin, and if Paul had to become a diakonos, a servant, to really understand the hope of the gospel, wouldn't that mean, too, that you have to become a slave of Christ to experience the hope of the gospel? I think it does. It's not an easy thing. I think it means real personal examination, confession of sin, real repentance, but it also means real freedom. And I want that for you. I want that uh, every day for me, for my family. Uh, And of course, don't misunderstand me. I want you to be assured of those uh, in this room, perhaps all of you, I don't know, who have confessed your sin. Be assured that Christ has set you free. But also be aware that, as Martin Luther said, all of life is repentance. And that means coming again and again and again to the throne of grace. To claim again and again and again that Christ is supreme. That I am not supreme. That he is supreme. And that we are to follow his law. As James would say, a law of liberty. It's not a constraining thing. It's something that leads to peace. It leads us not only to be holy in his sight, but to grow in that holiness every day. We'll all make mistakes and we'll all fail and we'll all need to continually repent. There's no question about that. There's also no question that if you really want to be free and continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, then that means that you have to claim Christ as supreme. You have to ask him to put to death your own pride in any area of life. Won't you join me as we go together to the throne of grace? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we thank you that this is a throne of grace. We thank you that you have offered us forgiveness. We confess that Christ is supreme. We have all, in some measure, some form or fashion, sought to have ourselves as supreme, not sought to follow your law. We thank you for the law given to us in the Ten Commandments. And yet, Lord, it is abundantly clear if we read our own larger catechism, that we all fall short of keeping your commands. And we thank you that even though we were his enemies, we were your enemies, that Christ came to die for us. We thank you that even though we do not measure up, and even though we were not worthy, that we were enemies, we were in rebellion against you, that you loved us and you sent forth your son to die for us on the cross. We pray that if there be any 
evil way in us, any wayward thought, any wayward action, uh, that you would bring that to light and that we would confess and repent and find grace. We thank you for the hope offered to us in the gospel. And I pray that you would assure our hearts through your Holy Spirit, a spirit of assurance, a spirit that silences the accuser. And we pray that we would grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.